Virgins and romance novels have historically gone hand in hand. Anyone who's read an OG bodice ripper and even many books published today will easily recognize this as a fact, to the point where virginity has become a trope we bandy about in Romancelandia. Some love it, some hate it, some view it as a holdover of the patriarchy. But where does this trope come from, and why does it have such a stranglehold, especially when it comes to our female main characters? Let's get into it. Dun dun dun! Hey there, romance nerds! I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes. Why do unicorns like silly jokes? Why? Because they're unicorny. (laughs) (laughs) They're definitely something. And we will get into it. Have no fear. Well, do we have anything to catch up on? I feel like it's been a while since. I don't know. I don't know why it feels like it's been a while. But we just did an episode last week. I know. I don't know why I said that. I just don't know what time is anymore. But it's a construct. It doesn't exist. Time is such a construct. I don't know what anything I is. I thought it was Friday every single day this week. This is a really depressing start. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be an interesting episode. But before we begin, as always, thank you to you romance nerds for tuning in for yet another episode of Raging Romantiques. And as always, thank you to Northern Onondaga Public Library for sponsoring this podcast. We are eternally grateful. Thank you very much. But if that's all we really have to catch up on, which honestly was not much of a catch up, but that's fine because this is a very long episode. (laughs) We're going to talk about virgins. Are you ready, Jen? Not really. Okay. But virgins. Virginal heroines, and sometimes heroes, are a cornerstone of the romance genre. And for the large part, there's something that I would say has been modernized as Western society has, mostly, evolved into a freer state of sexual expression. And as Jen and I have said before, a romance novel does not have to feature sex to be a romance novel. Romances come on a spectrum of spiciness. And as we always say, the only thing that is necessary for a book to be a romance is that a romantic relationship is featured between two or more characters essential to the plot, and that the book is H-E-A, Happily Ever After, or H-F-N, Happily Ever After for Now, guaranteed. If these two boxes are not ticked, then it's not a romance. Sex is not a necessary part of the equation, despite what naysayers of the genre might say. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about adult romance books. That is, romances that feature adults of a consenting age and are marketed to adult readers. Romance exists on a spectrum of spiciness from closed door all the way up through erotica, and virgins can exist anywhere on this spectrum. In and of itself, virginity is a loaded concept and one that has many different facets. Jen and I have been kind of wanting to talk about this for a while, but we haven't really known where to start to address such a topic. But after we did our medieval series this past summer, I had a glimmer of an idea, like a little light bulb above my head went off. I am going to leave it for Jen to eventually talk about modern romance landia and where the concept of virginity fits in there because she is the contemporary queen. Mm-hmm. I'm the history nerd. We have our we have our spheres of reality here. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about some of the origins of the trope of virginity and how it fits into romance books and literature at large. And to do that, we need to look at something that was foundational to the trope, the kidnapped virgin bride. 
And yes, there are many a Harlequin title that sound like that, but we aren't talking about Harlequin today. Instead, let's look at a few plot vehicles early writers and folklorists use when transcribing the spoken legend, aka mythical beasts being used as allegories of masculinity and society, and the virgins they stole slash seduced as allegories of good women, and specifically of good Christian women. An allegory, since that's not something I believe we've come across on the podcast yet, is a narrative that can be written, spoken, or visual, and can be interpreted to have a hidden meaning, generally a moral or a political one. So, for instance, Moby Dick is a well-known allegory about the harm of pride and power and other things. I just, I love that's your example for it's episode like of Virginity. The easiest one I think most people would recognize. Oh, I was thinking more because of the... The big white. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That mm. probably was subconscious but anyways Mm, well was it subconscious (laughs) knowing you the conversation we're going to be having today is again it's loaded with heavy topics namely the idea of good versus evil and the idea of christianity versus quote-unquote other and in the topic of quote good women being virgins please note that these are not necessarily ideas that jen and i hold however we are good circumspect researchers and podcasters and for me i'm a medieval historian so we need to look at these ideas and place ourselves in the shoes of those who wrote these tales in order to understand where the trope indeed the myth of virginity comes from and this goes for the discussion of virginity too because yes technically virginity is a state of being a physical state of being but throughout our society it has come to be loaded with implied meaning status and reflection of cultural more i'm not going to be talking about the physical status of virginity but more the allegorical and moral implications and the first glimmers of how what we consider to be the ethical status of virginity appeared in western literature We're all adults here, or at least I'm assuming we are. We better be. (laughs) If you are uncomfortable with this topic, that is totally chill. This is your content warning for the episode. Go ahead and listen to some of the other episodes instead. I've linked a few for you in the show notes. All right. You ready, Jen? I mean, I guess I have to be. I know. You have no... Yeah, I'm not, like... I don't know how thrilled I am about this episode. I'm, like, waiting and seeing. There are pictures. Uh There are fun... Not... There's fun animal pictures. Okay. I do like animals. And animal stories. Okay. And all that sort of good stuff. So Mm -hmm. there's like, there's guessing games too. Okay. All right. So throughout Western history and later world history, Christianity used motifs of folklore and local legend as an antithesis to good. Christianity, good. Pagan, non-believer, other, bad. And the easiest way of representing this dichotomy between good and evil, the easiest way of imparting these ideas in literature and other artistic expressions, came through monstrous depictions of masculine-coded beasts who would steal virtuous young women, i.e. virgins, away from their homes and families. These stories and these mythical creatures served as vehicles for the authors and artists to move their plot along. When medieval readers saw these mythical creatures come across the page or tapestry, they knew immediately what the plot would be just like we as modern readers know what some of our tropes and motifs immediately signify. Jen, can you name the two mythical beasts you think I'm talking about in particular here today? Well, I know unicorns have been associated with virginity Mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. The other one, though, I'm guessing it's got to be something meaner. Something we have already covered on the podcast. Yeah, that's what I figured. I'm trying to think. I'm so bad. I'm not like a dragon. Yeah really a dragon Mm -hmm. oh okay because i was thinking Mm -hmm. like how they plunder and steal stuff and yep i guess i was just thinking dragons are kind of big yeah 
Yep, but they weren't <laughs> always to begin with. Oh, okay, gotcha. So we're mm-hmm. going to go there. That's right, unicorns and dragons. Okay. Now, dear listener, as I said, Jen has already led an excellent episode about dragons in conjunction with our Ruby Dixon discussion from 2023. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is the first year we haven't done a Ruby Dixon Which is discussion. weird, but it's just it's what happened. We can only cover her so long. Ruby, let's get you back on the podcast, Okay. <laughs> But you can go listen to episode 57 for that discussion. But I do want to expound upon the myth of dragons, especially when it comes to virgins. Because after re-listening and rereading our notes, I think there were some holes left to fill. Oh my god, don't get me fired. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> adults. We are adulting adults. Mm. <laughs> Back when Jen covered dragons, we were coming at them from a shifter point of view. But that is not the path we are following today. Not the shifter, but rather the real, scaly, tallest houses and, to some medieval people, satanic dragons of yore. First, I want to talk about the origins of the dragon myth again. Jen did an excellent job. Episode 57, she talked about the global, mythological, and legendary origins of the dragon myth, from Asian art traditions to the misunderstandings of fossils, up through the natural prey reaction we as humans have to predators that fall within the reptilian category. However, there is one last theory I want to talk about that we never got the chance to dive into depth with last year. In fact, at one point in the episode, Jen even challenged me (laughs) to look up the origin of the word and bring it back to us. It's taken me a year. But here I am. I finally have the answer of where we get the word dragon from. Jen, you might know or remember this. Any guesses as to where and when the etymology is? I don't remember. I, my brain okay, is bad. That's okay. That's fair. I don't remember. That's fair. I'm the etymology nerd. The Greeks. It was all the Greeks. Oh, okay. The word dragon is derived from Greek drakon and its Latin cognate draco. For the Greeks, dracon was a snake or a serpent, specifically large constricting types of snakes such as pythons. And content warning, especially if you are my sister listening, we are going to be talking about scaly slithering things for the next little bit. So if snakes are no-no for you, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. The first mention we have of such a creature is in Homer's Iliad from the 9th century BCE. He uses the word dracon interchangeably with another word for snake throughout the tale. For instance, in Book 11, he uses dracon when describing Agamemnon's armor. Across his shoulders, Agamemnon strapped his sword. Then he picked up his shield, a splendid deadly shield, strong on both the sides, adorned with many splendid decorations. The strap was made of silver, and round it coiled a blue snake with three faces, each turning different ways, grown from one neck. But in Book 12, he uses ophis when describing a real serpent. That eagle flew up high from right to left and held the army back. His talons clutched a huge red snake, alive, but let him go and failed to bring the prize back to his home to give it to his children. For the Greeks and throughout literature written in Greek henceforth, dracon and ophis were used interchangeably throughout their texts, always meaning a large sort of constricting snake. But dracon is used in mythological or religious contexts, whereas ophis is used in more ordinary contexts, both of which we can see here in Homer. And so this correlation between Dragon as a mythological religious serpent grew through literary and artistic expression. That's why, for instance, in depictions of Apollo at Delphi, he's depicted slaying a dragon whose decaying body then provides the fumes by which the oracle receives her visions. By the time the Romans come around, the cognate Draco was used to describe large constrictors. But this is where things start to get interesting. And keep in mind, we're completely separating out Western traditions from Asian mythology because we see no true overlap between those two mythos until the Renaissance and period of exploration, especially with the tales of Marco Polo. 
to the West and with the Romans, Ophis fell out of fashion, fell out of usage. Instead, when referring, referring to a real-life snake, the Romans preferred to use the word serpente serpentum, meaning crawling thing, from the Greek herpeton, which is why we still use herpetologists for the study of such creatures. But Draco only continued to grow in usage and mythological standing, specifically following Pliny the Elder. Pliny was a Roman naturalist who lived in the first century CE, and he literally wrote the book on the natural world and its origins. Historia Naturalis is still revered and studied today, with many historians considering it to be the first encyclopedia ever written. Pliny broke the world down into different books, not just nature as we might understand in natural history today, but everything. Each book was broken up by topic into areas like astronomy, physical geography, anthropology, zoology, etc. And then within each book, it was further divided into encyclopedic knowledge of that topic. Sadly, Pliny the Elder only published the first 10 books in his lifetime before he died in 79 CE during the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. His nephew Pliny the Younger would revise and publish his remaining works. But to get back to dragons... Pliny used the word draco draconis in books 8 and 10, and this is where the western origins of flying dragons might come from. And if you are not a snake person, trigger warning for this next part. In book 8, Pliny describes how African dracones blend together and sail across the ocean using their raised head as sails. It is possible that this bit of folklore is based on real African snakes, such as cobras, who can flatten and spread their necks, and horrifyingly, they can swim. Oh, cool. Just add that to the nightmare fuel. <laughs> no, I'm... <laughs> from here, dragons really start to deviate from serpents in these Roman and early medieval depictions, and they start to become their own species that are ascribed moral characteristics. As the draconic creature grew in mythic pro proportions, both literally and literarily, at this same time, Christianity was growing in secularity through the Roman Empire. The 4th century especially was a foundational time for a lot of beliefs getting tied to Christian doctrine, mostly because this is when the first Council of Nicaea occurred in 325. This council was the first ever council in the history of the Christian church that was intended to, intended to address the entire body of believers. Convened by the Emperor Constantine, the council was brought together to discuss matters related to beliefs and to cement certain ideas as doctrine. No, dragons were not part of the Council of Nicaea, Jen. I'm so sorry. They did oh, not talk man. about dragons there. But you need to understand the effect such a council had on the psychology of belief in the 4th century. Convening any large group together, especially when its head is the leader of your empire, is going to have lasting effects on your worldview. Dragons were just a byproduct of this. Augustine of Hippo, a.k.a. St. Augustine, the doctor of the Catholic Church and one of the founders of Christianity, wrote of dragons in the 4th century following the Council of Nicaea in his extrapolation of Psalm 148. Psalm 148.7, from the King James Version, says, Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all abysses. And Augustine breaks this down because I found it very surprising that the Bible would mention dragons, but that is just me being the heretic that I am. <laughs> um, but Augustine breaks this down for us, defining dragons and abysses. He says, let me hang on, it's tiny text I have to get through. <clears throat> Dragons live about the water, come out from caverns, caverns, fly through the air. The air is set in motion by them. Dragons are a huge kind of living creature, greater there are, not upon the earth. Therefore with them he begins, dragons and all abysses. There are caves with hidden waters whence springs and streams come forth. Some come forth to flow over the earth, some flow secretly beneath, and all this kind, all this damp nature of waters, together with the sea and this lower air, are called 
abyss or abysses where dragons live and praise God. And I really like this next part, Jen, because Augustine gets sassy with us. What? Think we that the dragons form choirs and plays praise God? Far from it. But do ye, when you consider the dragons, regard the maker of the dragon, the creator of the dragon? Then, when you admire the dragons and say, great is the Lord who made these, then the dragons praise God by your voices. Ooh! Yeah. I just really like, he's like, what? Think ye <laughs> that dragons form choirs? Psh. I can just see him being sassy up on the pulpit. <laughs> <clears throat> this passage is cited repeatedly by natural historians going forward. Dragons are described throughout the Middle Ages as giant serpent-like beings, some who can fly, some who just crawl. There's a lot of different types of dragons. And they come forth, forth from caves and have a predilection for watery areas. But further, by linking dragons to a creation and exaltation of a Christian god, it is henceforth irrevocable that Christian morals are naturally ascribed to the idea of a dragon. So the stage is set for the wild medieval peeps to do what they will, and they do. The dragons of the medieval world were creatures wholly accepted to both exist and to be allegories. Duality between existence and myth was heavily present in the medieval world. The reasoning of golden age and classical scholars persisted through church learnings and in centers of academia such as Oxford, Cambridge, Sevilla, Bologna, Paris, Baghdad, and Algiers. Science and understanding of the physical world, though different from our own today, still relied heavily on what actually existed around these scholars. But at the same time, legendary beliefs shaped how these scholars approached the world and how we, the people, understood it. Universal education was not instituted for the most part until the 19th century for most of the world. So for the medieval peoples, especially of the West, their understanding of how the world worked was shaped around the myths and legends they were raised with. So really quick, yeah. did they think dragons existed in the same time period they were living in? Or did they think, oh, yeah, these are like ancient beasts from the Bible? It's kind of like how we look at aliens today. Okay. So it's like. They're out there. They're out there. They mm -hmm. could be out there. Okay. We've never seen okay. them. So it wasn't like there was somebody who was going around like, I've seen the dragon. I mean, there were too. Okay. But and they couldn't like really prove it. There yeah, weren't like There were no iPhones back then. Yeah, I know. There weren't like <laughs> big groups of people that were like, oh, yeah, we went and sliced his head off. There were kind of like how you talked about in your last episode, how people would like put fossils together and yeah. be like, look what I found. So that was their proof. Yeah. Were the bones. It wasn't like there were people out there that were like, yeah, let me, tell me tell you about the time I saw the dragon. No, there were people doing that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. There so were a lot like, of liars oh, out there. There were lots of liars. There were tall tailors. There were mm -hmm. people who were just like on the hype train, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So okay. they existed and they didn't exist gotcha. at the same time. Okay. Yeah, the medieval world is really interesting because of that, because they like couldn't prove it, no, and then they had all these myths and legends, and they were like, yeah, sure, mm -hmm. why not? Okay. It happened. Well, it was like the proof was in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And like, I don't have to actually see a giraffe in person to know giraffes exist. A lot of people thought giraffes were dragons. <laughs> I could see that with the decks, yeah. <laughs> and unicorns, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about. Well, we won't talk about giraffes, but yeah. So dragons by the 8th century were winged creatures who existed both in the scientific sphere, as regularly described in medieval bestiaries, and also in the sphere of local belief, spread through spoken myths and legends and the Bible. A bestiary, as a brief aside, is a type of illuminated manuscript featuring stories and biblical lessons about animals. It is important to note, as I believe I spoke of in the medieval series and in other episodes, because this is literally my wheelhouse, during the medieval time, monasteries were the hub of book production. And so many books and manuscripts we have from this time will most likely have been produced by the church with a capital C. And again, this is because of the cost, both monetary and in man hours, that went into creating a manuscript. 
Monks were trained in a scriptorium to write and to create beautiful works of art that would become their manuscripts. Letter shapes, abbreviations, language and linguistics, translations, types, styles of illumination and illustration, plus bookbinding and materials creation were all centered in scriptoria, which were always housed in a monastery or ecclesiastical center for the majority of the medieval period. But dragons, I know, I hear Jen screaming at me in her mind. Because dragons were described in bestiaries and drawn in their eye, that meant they were linked even further physically with Christian doctrine. If you add everything together we've just laid out, dragons being related to serpents and snakes, dragons being tied to the Christian god through literature and language, dragons being created into these mythical flying beasts that were described in Christian literature, what do you have? The perfect recipe for virgin-stealing monsters. And they feel like they'd be pretty hot. It took me a minute, but I got there. Did you see a dawn in my yeah, eyes? I, <laughs> I was like, well, You yeah. thought it was just an unnecessary, unneeded comment, but it was an unnecessary, unneeded pun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. We've missed your puns. Mm-hmm. Now, it should be said that not all medieval dragons were bad, but especially in Christian England and Europe, the mythos behind the dragon being a monster was heavily perpetuated. Now, one, re- one reason for this correlation stems from the hagiographies and the myths retold there. A hagiography is a saint's life, often mythicized. Mythicized. I feel like I never say that word right, but I'm saying it how it's spelled. So often mythicized. One of these hagiographies, which is central to dragon iconography for the medieval peoples, comes from the 11th century with the story of St. George. Tradition holds that the real St. George, the patron saint of England, died in 303 CE in Israel under Emperor Diocletian's persecution of Christian martyrs. But during his legendary life, the story of him slaying a dragon and rescuing a princess becomes synonymous with the draconic legend. The tradition tells us that a fierce dragon was causing havoc in the city of Selene in Libya, and that people there offered two sheep a day to the beast. But eventually, that was not enough, and they were forced to offer human sacrifices. The king's maiden daughter was chosen to be sacrificed, but George saved the girl by slaying the dragon with his lance. Really quick. So, like, the sacrifice, like, for eating or for fun? Wink. Wink. Okay. I just really like the. I'm listen, Saint George, Catholic saint, all this, but mm-hmm. he slayed the dragon and saved the girl the with sheath. his lance. Yeah. I mean, it just it all mm-hmm. rolls itself together. The joke writes itself, yeah. people. Like I get why they were into this. Yeah, the virginal princess was thus saved by the hero, and the dragon, evil, bad, non-Christian beast, was vanquished by holy might and right. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, George. The story of St. George was ratified by the publication of the golden legend, Legenda Orea or Legenda Sanctorum, which is a collection of hagiographies likely compiled in the mid-13th century by Jacobus de Voragine. Voragine? I don't know. Jacobus. It became incredibly popular both with the church and with the secular crowd, and when printing was invented in the West in the 15th century, editions appeared quickly in Latin and in almost every major European language. In the Golden Legends, we see we see frequent dragons. Say that ten times fast. That's really hard. Frequent dragons. <laughs> Not only with St. George, but also as typified in the legend of St. Margaret of Antioch. Margaret was a virgin martyr who, after being tortured for her faith, also under Diocletian, was thrown back into herself before she could be persecuted. There it is said she was confronted by a monstrous dragon who was, supposedly, Satan incarnate. Mm. When Margaret refused to be scared of the dragon, he swallowed her. But Margaret produced a golden crucifix, and the dragon spat her out. In a lot of depictions, she's drawn actually coming out of the dragon's split belly. 
I mean, it's so obvious why this stuff is attracted to romance. It like, really I don't, is. I don't even know what to say. It just, it writes fired. itself. Yeah. <laughs> it really writes itself, yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. But this association between dragons and Satan was nothing new. In translations of the Old Testament, specifically from Revelations 12, Satan is named as a dragon. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And further, in Revelations twelve seventeen, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, a.k.a. the Virgin Mary, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. Now, if we look back at everything we've spoken of here, this is quite likely the root of the problem of the dragon and the virgin. Mm-hmm. Revelations was most likely written in the first century CE in Ephesus by a guy named John the Elder. They spoke Greek in Ephesus. And Jen, what did we learn about the Greeks and dragons? They like each other. Close enough. Uh, dragon was a serpent, was a mythical creature. And so the translation of Satan as a dragon is quite likely an exaggeration of the Greek transliteration of serpent, a.k.a. dracon. Since they would have used dracon instead of ophis because ophis meant real snake and dracon was an allegorical snake and Satan was an allegorical snake in the Bible and then he kind of turned into it. You get what I'm saying. This continued affirmation behind the relationship for Satan as a dragon and dragons as Satan for the continued period of the high and late medieval ages. So the people who wrote the Bible, this was always a metaphor. But then, you know, some the time passes. Who translated yeah, the okay. Bible. All right. That's a better distinction. So the yes. people who translated it was like, oh, hey, look at this cool metaphor. And mm-hmm. then a couple generations, it's, oh, look at this cool monster that totally existed. Yeah. I think we talked okay. about it in our witches episode, like in 2022. Yeah. 2022. We talked about how the King James Bible did a lot of like transliteration and like a lot of really loosey goosey translations mm-hmm. with things like witches and demons and dragons. Yeah. And this was just one of those things where a lot of prejudices were put into the word Mm -hmm. and it's just something that was continually perpetuated Mm -hmm. yeah yeah good question so when myths were told of dragons and virgins everyone automatically knew that dragons were evil anti-christian characters quite literally the devil in a lot of myths and that virgins were good christian women and a lot of the times they were actually martyrs or princesses as we saw in both these stories thus this ascribed a value to their virginity if the dragon wanted to steal them, they must be virgins. If they were virgins, then they must be women of high moral standing in their society. And thus, we have the correlation between virginity and moral goodness as written about in our dominant Western mythos. So they don't care about princesses that have had sex? No. And they don't care about virgins that aren't princesses? We will get to, to both of those facts. With our next mythical creature, come on down... That's right. We're talking about everyone's favorite mythic equine that is not actually an equine. The unicorn. Mm. Jen, back to guessing games. Oh, boy. If you had to guess where and when, mostly the where, where do you think the unicorn comes from? It was probably some from some weird de- deformed horse or like a deformed like elk that only had one horn. Scroll down for a picture. Oh. <laughs> ladies and gents do not worry i will link the photo for you in the show notes oh, so funny archaeologically so speaking, cute the unicorn is probably based on the extinct elasmotherium a large relative of the rhino that had a single horn growing out of its forehead mm-hmm. 
Notably, they are differentiated from rhinos because all extant species of rhinos have horns growing from their nose area, and all species have two horns. Hence the name rhinoceros, broken down to mean nose horn. Mm -hmm. Rhino, cat on. But this guy, it's got it coming out of its head. It's straight out of its head. Scroll down to the next page. (laughs) Oh, my God. Right? Right? That's insane. The creature (laughs) look like a horse. The Elasmotherium is a different branch of the family tree. This creature survived in human history through when we invented agriculture, and some cave art depicts it as recently as fifteen thousand years ago. Wow. Elasmotherium fossils indicate that the creature grew to be five tons. That is the picture that Jen just looked at and she goes, Doesn't even look like a horse. For size comparison, the largest breed of horse, the Dutch draft, typically only weighs today up to two tons. Does it offend you as a horse? person that this thing is called a horse no because i was obsessed with unicorns when oh, i was a okay. kid so it's fine i think mm. it's cute <laughs> it looks more like a weird mole with a it, horn yeah. or like a like a weird monkey or like something that maybe like a it inspired, like a sloth that's yeah. what it is it looks like it a kind of looks like a sloth it actually inspired one of the beasts in fantastic beasts and like um the jk rowling mm-hmm. she who shall not be named fantastic mm-hmm. beasts and where to find them mm-hmm. it inspired one of the creatures oh, okay. in there i haven't read it the movie's better. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's one of the only times you'll hear me say that, folks. But listeners, again, go ahead, click the links. I have included um, the photo, which is an 1878 reconstruction of what an elasmotherium probably looked like, as well as the giant picture of really like big. humans next to this yeah. thing. Like, it's wild to think that this monstrous, weird, horned sloth beast became like the cute little delicate horse thing mm-hmm. that we know it, it did as. the opposite of the dragon yeah it, like got prettier yeah mm-hmm. and dragons got bigger and this got smaller mm-hmm. right yeah the elasmotherium is also shown to have ranged all over eurasia and especially in the areas we today recognize as the balkans the middle east and the mongolian steppes the unicorn that we will recognize as a mythic creature makes his first appearance in the western writings around 400 bce in the writings of Ctesias. Ctesias of Cnidus. That's a name. Was a Greek physician serving the Persian king at the time. He is known for two of his books, especially Persica, in which he summarizes the history of Persia, and Indica, describing the customs and wildlife of India. Although the works themselves have been lost, fragments survive as quoted by later authors, and Indica is especially notable, notable as it contains the first Western description of a unicorn. Quote, in India, there are wild asses as large as horses or even larger. Their body is white, their head dark red, their eyes bluish, and they have a horn on their forehead about forehead about a cubit in length. Cubit is like four hands stacked on top mm. of one another. The lower part of the horn, for about two palms distance from the forehead, is quite white. The middle is black. The upper part, which terminates in a point, is a very flaming red. He's very specific about this. Ctesias's descriptions most likely align with some sort of donkey wild ass aka the Indian onager or some sort of like goat hybrid thing though some scholars debate whether he was describing an elasmotherium or kind of like a runt descendant of an elasmotherium but we do also have to mention the eastern origins of the unicorn which predate our Persian version by 2200 years in Chinese mythology the Chilin and I'm so sorry. I looked up how to pronounce that. I've, If I still pronounced it wrong, you can yell at me all you want. It's Q-I-L-I-N in the Western alphabet. Is a creature whose appearance coincides with the imminent birth or death of a sage or illustrious ruler. The name is a combination of the two characters, Qi, meaning male, and Nin, meaning female. A Qi Lin has a single horn on its forehead, a yellow belly, 
a multicolored back, the body of a deer, and the tail of an ox. The first Chilin is said to have been is said to have appeared in the garden of the legendary Huangdi, Yellow Emperor, in 2697 BCE. The Chinese Chilean is separated, mythologically speaking, from the Western unicorn, just as the dragon was. Not only by phenotype, meaning it kind of looked more like a cow or a deer, as compared to Western depictions, which equaled more of something like a goat or a horse, mm -hmm. but also by their purpose. Ctesias describes the purpose of his unicorn as a prey animal, not the harbinger of greatness as the Chilean was, whose parts are sought after for magical healing. Quote, those who drink out of cups made from the horn are proof against convulsions, epilepsy, and even poison, provided that before or after having taken it, they drink some wine or water or other liquid out of these cups. Remember that, Jen? That's important for later, but also that's why Voldemort drinks Yeah, uh, I was going to say, blood. that's like another Harry Potter thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's like, that is unicorn lore, is that their horn, their blood, their body parts yeah. are like Magic. mystical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the 4th century BCE, the Western myth of the unicorn follows a trajectory similar to the dragon. Our friend Pliny again describes unicorns, though unlike with his dis description of the dracones, he relies upon Ctesias' description, saying, Ctesias says that in India there are also oxen with solid hooves and one horn, unicornes, but that the fiercest animal is the unicorn, monokerotem, mm, mono I think is how you say it, which in the rest of its body resembles a horse, but in the head, a stag, in the feet, an elephant, and in the tail, a boar, a wild boar, and has a deep bellow and a single black horn, three feet long, projecting from the middle of the forehead. They say that it is impossible to capture this animal alive. Mm. There are descriptions of unicorns in Hebrew scripture with the Re'em. Again, I'm so sorry. I looked it up. I'm trying. Yell at me all you want. I fully accept that which historically most Jewish scholars presumed either represented a unicorn or a rhino. In fact, the association with, with Re'em and unicorn is probably from the 3rd century translation of the Hebrew Bible in the Septuagint. There, are, there the Hebrew Re'em was translated to Greek monokeros, or one horn, which is why the King James Bible, again, translated it as unicorn using direct transliteration. Today, though, contemporary translations consider the Ra'em to be a wild ox, and specifically an aurochs, which became extinct in 1627. And in Iranian and Islamic lore, creatures like the Karkadan and the Shadhavar are both described as unicorns with a single mystical horn, and as being a kind of chimera, whether in the mix of an elephant and a horse, the Karkadan, or a gazelle whose horn has 42 hollow branches, the Shadhavar. Interestingly, in Islamic lore, there is a third type of unicorn that might sound a little more familiar for the prepared and fellow unicorn-loving listener. The Harish was a small, fierce creature the size of a lamb, and the only way to capture it was to expose it to a young virgin. The Harish would then leap into the virgin's arms, attempt to suckle milk, and from there it would be so intoxicated by <laughs> desire that it could be tied firmly with a rope. Oh, there's another monster romance. Remember that. It's important for later, but also, yes, again, it just writes itself. I'm really surprised there are no unicorn shifter romances that I've come across. I feel like probably the answer is going to come in the script where like the dragons are seen as more big and bad and like mm. alpha and masculine and we'll get to okay again yeah. like me being maybe a little what's a good word for me being a little like cynical. Oh, yeah a little cynical <laughs> I don't think people see unicorns as like heroes no you know we'll if we're gonna be like a, a gross Nicholas Sparks right now like yeah you know you can't exactly tame a unicorn the way you can tame a dragon well, I mean, I know there's ways to do it. I have read that stuff, but like, 
I'm just saying. I think that's that's why unicorns haven't quite hit in the yeah, shifter. Yeah, there's realm. also yeah. a Freudian reason, which yeah. we'll talk about. And you know, I feel like in general, I don't see a lot of horses in shifters outside yeah, of like a true. centaur. And I don't see many centaurs either, which really yeah. makes me sad because I would love some centaur. Romance. It might be too close to an animal for some people. Oh, yeah, that's, that's my true. assumption. That is true. Though, to be fair, there's a lot of other kinds of animals, so. I don't know, maybe that's just too close for some people. I was reminded that there are croissant shifters by yeah. re-listening to episode 57. Exactly. So. so I don't know what it is. Maybe we just have to wait for their own Santa cycle, which will lead to Krampus, and then will lead to all these Goats, other things. Goats, which yeah. will lead to unicorns. Yeah, you know, okay. it's like, it's okay. weird sometimes what pops up in romance. But that that's just like my gut feeling of yeah. like why we've seen a oh. lot more dragons. And like dragons can fly. Yeah. And they're cooler. Plus, like you and said they before, fire. the gold hordes. Yeah. And... and you know, if I want, if I'm like looking at a hero that's a unicorn or a dragon, I probably want the dragon. Yeah. Just being totally honest, especially if it's like a Ruby Dixon world where it's, you know, apocalypse. I want the dragon. Yeah. What's the unicorn going to do? It's going to stab somebody with a horn and then get stabbed itself? You can drink its blood and be magically cured. That's going to be like a sacrifice thing. That's like I'm dying and the, the, unicorn, the unicorn gives me its last blood. That could be an interesting book. I'm just saying it's a sad book, though. Yeah, that yeah. is true. That is true. Uh, there was also, I did find a medieval cookbook on how to cook unicorns. Because <laughs> they had so much experience with Yeah, them. I know. It kind of scares <laughs> me. Funny. But anyways, back to... Unicorns. Unicorns exist essentially all throughout the lore of the Middle East, Africa, and Eurasia, which lends itself to the theory of originating from the Elasmotherium, whose territory is believed to have encompassed that range. Assyrians, Zoroastrians, Harappans, Indians, and more cultures beside all have legends of some sort, some form of mammalian unicorn. But by the early medieval period, the mammalian creature of scientific t- scientific descriptions grew into even further legendary proportions. Isidore of Seville, Sevilla, was the archbis- archbishop of Seville who lived from 560 to 630 CE, and he, like Pliny, wanted to categorize the world around him. As such, he compiled his infamous etymologiae, etymologies, an encyclopedic ob- observation and categorization of everything he could name. It served much as Augustine's extrapolation of the Psalms did, breaking things down to edify them into Christian theology. To Isidore, the unicorn was a creature with, quote, a single four-foot horn in the middle of its forehead, so sharp and strong that it tosses in the air or impales whatever it attacks. It often fights with the elephant and throws it to the ground after wounding it in the belly. It has such strength that it can be captured by no hunter's ability. But, as those who have written about the the natures of animals claim— if a, vir- if a virgin girl is set before a unicorn as the beast approaches, she may open her lap and it will lay its head there with all ferocity put aside and thus lulled and disar- disarmed it may be captured. Romance. See? I'm just saying this is another reason why you can't make him the hero. Yeah. Actually, you could make him the hero for like a betrayal kind of plot. We're getting to the betrayal. Oh. 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 Hey, hey. You just missed Jen and I like pointing at each other. So there we go. Isidore, being a father of the church, much much like Augustine was, had his word taken as doctrine. Every description of a unicorn going forward in vaguely scientific text quoted this passage from Isidore. And every depiction used Isidore's description, oftentimes ascribing goat or horse-like qualities to the creature. Jen, I have once again given you medieval imagery. Listeners, you can find these linked in the show notes. These are what medieval people thought unicorns might look like. You'll notice it kind of looks like a horse, but it's got, they all have cloven. Yeah, you can scroll. (gasps) No! Yeah. They're getting stabbed. That's so mean. What did the unicorn do to him? Were they like mean? They weren't like mean. 
Were they? Were they like killing them as they like were a like kind a, of ferocious? Okay. That was like the whole thing was like the virgins capturing them and taming yeah. the beast again, taming the beast. I get that, but, but like, were they dangerous that they had to like betray them this way? This is so mean. Of. And then a lot of it, which we'll talk about, was like um, medieval masculinity and hunting. Ugh, yeah. But gross. then also again for the mystical properties of like mm-hmm. their bodies. And one last thing that you will not see coming that is saved for the very end. Oh, God. But you'll notice they all have cloven hooves. Yeah. So they all have multiple hooves. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of look like horses, kind of not yeah. sometimes. And then you can scroll down to the next page, too. That last one looks the most like a horse, yeah. I think. But you can see how it's got well, a really yeah, long horn that's broken. it's got like a sad horn. Yeah. What happened to the horn? It got stuck. Oh, okay. It wasn't like the bird came up and no, I don't remember why the bird was there. Okay, and I can't scroll in on the text to translate it. I think it's in German. But anyways, just mean. I mean, this stuff doesn't even exist, and I feel bad for it. Yeah, and you have right to feel bad for why why we feel bad about the the unicorn getting slain. Yeah. So what did it do to you? Leave it alone. Let's get into it. Maybe the unicorn just can be like the virgin's pet. What's wrong with that? Just like that's how you deal with it. We'll get into it. Oh, God. Okay. From the 7th century onwards, the unicorn, much like the dragon, came to exist in the duality of myth versus reality. Medieval people understood it as a mythical creature, but also believed that they could go out and catch it given the right circumstances. Quote, the unicorn is written about in histories and bestiaries as a real animal found in the wild of foreign lands. The existence of the unicorn in medieval Europe was taken for granted. However, bestiaries kept hanging fantastic properties on the horn of the unicorn. And so because of these mythic properties, the unicorn was frequently hunted, as I just Mm -hmm. said. You may have noticed in every single depiction of the unicorn I just quoted, they noted the difficulty of the unicorn to capture. And according to all traditions, the only way to capture a unicorn, as we've seen and Jen has already noted, is with a virgin. I guess it's only a female virgin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I should have said at this point, we're just talking about female virgins. Mm -hmm. Just to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. Male virginity in the medieval ages, unless you were a monk, was like... You kind of lost it when you were probably way too young. Mm. So it was, yeah. Anyways. Wasn't a big deal. Yeah. No. Moving on. Notably, one of the most popular origins for using a virgin to capture a unicorn comes to us from the 4th or 5th century Physiologus, a didactic Christian text written or compiled in Greek by an unknown author in Alexandria. Unlike the Etymologiae or Pliny's Natural Histories, the Physiologus did set about to describe nature in an objective way, though still with a slant that the stories were used to illustrate the deeper meaning, specifically the Christian, religious, dogmatic, allegorical meaning that was thought to be embedded in nature. Jen, I'm going to read you this quote from the Physiologus. Um, it's one of the oldest translations we have of this, and it's people think it might be one of the original translations, okay? And keep in mind, talking about the Harish from earlier, right? The little okay. goat-like thing. There is an animal called the unicorn, extremely gentle, which the hunters are unable to capture because of its great strength. It has in the middle of its brow a single horn. But observe the ruse by which huntsmen take it. They lead forth a young virgin, pure and chaste, to whom when the animal sees her, he approaches, throwing himself upon her. Then the girl offers him her breasts, and the animal begins to suck the breasts of the maiden and to conduct himself familiarly with her. Then the girl, while sitting quietly, reaches forth her hand and grasps the horn on the animal's brow. Come on. And at this point, the huntsmen come up and take the beast and go away with him. Okay. I mean, I get what you're saying here, but it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm 
if an animal is gonna put himself on you, I guess it's okay to portray him by allowing the hunters to take him. But just the whole thing is mean. It's an it's allegory. It's all mean for everybody. I know it's an allegory. Okay, fine. I'm gonna focus on that instead of this dumb idea of mine that oh, the unicorns existed and this is this is a mean thing. But to also, do that. it but is right. It's like very like okay, like. But you're we're again. You're, we'll talk about why it's mean and more than you would think in a second. Okay. I mean, obviously, it's super mean, but it is just also like, yeah, this to is to both why. the unicorn and the poor virgin. Yeah. To everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Except the huntsmen. They, Ugh, they suck. Them. So this is called the virgin capture legend, which is an actual medieval trope that was commonly used throughout legends. And from the Physiologus and through the Middle Ages, it became highly popularized in legendary depictions of the unicorn. But then what impact does this have on the idea of virginity? If virgins are the only ones who can capture these mythical beasts, why? My answer to you is the 13th century. Really quick, with the virgin capture thing, is mm-hmm. the virgin being the one who's captured or the virgin's doing the capturing? Yes and yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. So it kind of depends on the myth of where the virgin comes from. But like so in the, the legend with St. George, how the king's maiden daughter was offered up as a human sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. There are some stories where the virgin is led forth into the woods unwillingly. There's some where she knows the unicorn from before, and they're like, you, you know the unicorn. We will take you with us. Mm-hmm. And there's other where she's like, yeah, no, I'll volunteer myself. Okay. So there's also sto- <laughs> there's also stories of uh, women who will pretend to be virgins to mm-hmm. try to capture the unicorn. Most notably, I forget who it was, but one of the primary sources was like, and if you go to a whorehouse and you find Jeez. a woman who has known familiarly with laying with men then you can attempt to paint her up as a young maiden however the unicorn will know and the unicorn will impale her (laughs) so and that just is this whole thing that i didn't even want to touch on but that just says something about Mm. the poor sex workers yeah so and how they viewed sex workers yeah so the 13th century was a time of major societal change for medieval persons especially in medieval europe Prior to the Black Plague of the later 14th century, societal stratification and the loss of serfdom, as well as the growing imperial monarchies, brought about a lot of changes. And as part of this, as we remember from this summer, during this time we had the growth of courtly love and chivalry that came to be highly popularized during the high medieval ages. And this lends itself to the third and final part of the equation, the growth of the cults of the Virgin Mary. Mary, Jesus' mother, had of course always been a popular figure throughout the history of Christendom. But with the rise of courtly love, women were able to start finding their own idols in ways they hadn't before. The Virgin Mary became one such idol. She embodied everything medieval femininity was modeled after. She was gracious, loving, pure of mind and body, and she was the perfect mother. Imagery began to appear throughout iconography. Statues were placed in churches showing the virgin with her child. Countless roadside shrines were dedicated where people could stop and pray to her. Tokens and amulets with her image upon them were created to ward off all manners of illness and disease. Prayers were offered to her to help women conceive or watch over their children. Crusaders returned with Mary relics um, and carried images carried images and symbols of the virgin upon their banners which then spilled over into the field of jousting and tournaments we start to see icons of the lily the iris and the rose appearing in churches and cathedrals and elsewhere like royal heraldry and then even in literary allegory in short people were gaga over the virgin mary and other virgin symbology as a whole where prior virgins had mostly been relegated to Christian saints and martyrs and the brides of Christ, now virginity became a new ideal, one that was tied to courtly love and chivalry, masculine ideals. 
A lot of this, of course, had to do with the inheritance in the various monarchical houses, but we touched on that in the medieval episode, so I'm not going to get to that here. By this point in time, as with the dragon, the unicorn had been assumed into religious iconography. The horn, nobody will be surprised, Jen least of all, <laughs> was a masculine symbol. What a shock! Which, of course, we see hyperbolized through the retellings of Physiologus when the virgin would grasp the horn and mm. capture the unicorn. Hmm. By the high medieval period, we have in ecclesiastical writings that the unicorn is a symbol for Jesus. That's pretty funny. <laughs> 14th century Benedictine monk Ranulf Higdon tells us, Likewise, one can introduce a theme by a simile in nature. One is able to capture the bravest animals, an elephant and a unicorn, in this manner. The unicorn, i.e. the bravest son of God, he who laid waste those men and angels who opposed him and who aspired to more than was acceptable, becomes mild when he places his sacrifice in the lap of the virgin, virgin with a capital V, thereby fulfilling Isaiah, the young man will dwell with a maiden. We see that, like the dragon and Augustine, Christian leaders were using popular myths and legends and subsuming them under the Christ legend, using motifs and characters and creatures that were popular with the secular world and ascribing Christian attributes and morals to them. And once again, the virgin has been dragged into the fray. But even further still, the unicorn hunt, the only thing that allegorically is said to lead to the capture of the unicorn, is a masculine-coded ceremony. Please go listen to episode number 71. I go off on a fun little tangent, or at least it was fun to me, about masculine-coded landscapes and how deer hunts got lumped into the definition of medieval masculinity. The unicorn hunt, with the added layers of the unicorn as a Christ-like figure and the virgin as a representation of the ideal woman, i.e. the Virgin Mary, and the hunt as a masculine activity, became embedded in medieval literature. I would say that this, more so than any literary source, lends itself to the view of medieval virginity and the misogyny there. There is a distressing dichotomy represented in the virgin capture legends that we cannot ignore. Secular men went to capture a mythical creature, and so they drag a poor virgin into the woods, sometimes tying her to a tree, and expect her to essentially seduce the creature, whereby it can then be captured and its horn taken as well as other parts. The virgin then becomes a duplicitous creature, valued for her status as a maiden, but by participating in the hunt, she takes part in what was viewed as a licentious activity, indeed what would be deemed as bestiality, and the mythical creature is captured because of her. This is the Madonna horror complex before Freud was even a glimmer in history's eye. Not only this... But the virgin becomes a betrayer through her participation. And if we read further and use our critical thinking brains, we can see that the maiden, the innocent girl, through sexual acts which were forced upon her, becomes an allegory as the betrayer of Christ and the reason he was slain. Thereby, medieval virgins were held as symbols of femininity of the Virgin Mary. But by their participation in sexual acts, even if it was through dubcon or non-consensual acts, is heretofore tainted irrevocably in the medieval viewer's mind. Unless they're, like, married. Unless they're married, yeah. Mm. Yep, yep. And I think it's no great stretch for the modern listener to recognize this sentiment, sentiment as something that has existed in our literature and our society for years. Early romance novels of the late 20th century heralded virgins, and heroines were always virgins who were led astray by the heroes. In fact, for a long period in the genre, sex could only be initiated by the hero, and the heroine always had to fight against it. Flame of the flower. Yep, yep. Even the capturing thing kind of fits them, because mm -hmm. he, like, captured her, yep. in a sense. Clearly, it's not been left behind in medieval tropes. Yeah. No. 
So to sum everything all up, the dragon gives us the virgin martyr, the good and pure maiden who would face down Satan in the form of a horrendous beast and live to tell the tale. But by the time the unicorn comes around, the virgin's tale becomes twisted, showing us the distressing way in which, vir in which virgins and women were beginning to be viewed in Western literature. They were Madonnas or they were whores, to borrow from Freud, which was something I never thought I'd say on this podcast. <laughs> What started as a good and pure woman becomes something that was duplicitous by nature. Nothing was sacred. And even in the face of mythical creatures, the virgins could not protect themselves, forced into action by their fellow man. Listener, I will ask one last thing of you if you have not yet. Please go look up the Unicorn Tapestries, which is a series of seven tapestries created between 1495 and 1505 in the Netherlands. And the artwork conveys everything in beautiful art that we've just talked about. And Jen... What are your thoughts on everything I've just laid out? I don't know if I have thoughts. No thoughts, just vibes. I don't know. I'm just like horrified. Lot, yeah. This is awful. I hate this. You know, it also just occurred <sighs> to me, and I don't know why, but didn't, but like dragon was the devil and the yeah. unicorn was Jesus and the virgin is kind of between them, in between them. And it's yeah. just interesting to see how it shifted. I, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. This was a really depressing episode. I, well, yeah. Sorry. I did not like this. <laughs> I really all. just wanted to talk about unicorns. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so listener, let us know what you think. Um, Jen, maybe some point in the future we'll talk about <sighs> modern heroines and we'll see. I don't know about that. Maybe like the early like flame in the flower versions. Oh god. Might be interesting. Ugh. I'll drag you kicking and screaming and tie you to it's a tree. It's so sad when I look <laughs> yeah. at these pictures, the tapestries you yeah. sent of like the poor unicorn getting stabbed. Like, leave them alone. What gets me too is when you get to the last one, which is the unicorn in the field, mm. there's a lot of art historians who will look at it and say the unicorn is lying passively mm. in the field. Um, because if you look at it, he's not chained. The fence is low enough. He can jump out and there's a smile on his face. Mm. Which I was like, well, that's anthropomorphizing first yeah. off. But then also there's a lot of art historians who will look at the virgin capture and who will look at specifically these um, these tapestries, tapestries and say the virgin was another passive figure throughout all of this. She mm -hmm. just kind of like reacted instead of acted. Yeah. And I was like, well, that is a whole other loaded It's kind of weird to me, too, that in a lot of the pictures with the hunt, she's not actually in the pictures anymore. No, no. They've like scooted her away. Well, because she's only hunting was like a once. man's activity. Yeah. It's just, uh, the dogs look way too happy to bite the unicorn. Yeah. I don't like this. And even though this was 600 years ago, 650 years ago, um, a lot of that can still be ascribed to some modern viewpoints, I think. Yeah. No, I don't like this at all. Thanks, Sorry. Jackie. I didn't think it would be depressing. I thought you would like to talk about unicorns and dragons again. <laughs> and then Ugh. virgins, and I'm sorry. Anyways. Well, Jen, what are we reading now? <laughs> Let's move on to happier things. What did you read? I don't even... What, well, I read Verity. Okay, but we're yeah. going to talk about that Yeah, elsewhere. exactly. You don't want to hear about it. Have you read anything else? Uh, did I? Oh, I read um The Bridge Ladies for Memoir Book Club. Oh, what's that? It was fine. Oh, what is it? <laughs> it was this woman who moves to back to her hometown of New Haven to take care of her mother as she gets older. And her mother has had this bridge club for 50 years. So this woman oh, bridge, explores like the oh, okay. bridge, like the game. Yeah. So she explores uh, these women's lives and oh. why they've stayed connected for 50 years. And it's also kind of an examination of her own troubled relationship with her mother. Interesting. So it was okay. It was fine. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Who was that by? Betsy Lerner. Okay. Lerner. Lerner. It was interesting. 
Well, reader, I had to text Jen that I actually threw a book across the room. <laughs> that was weird. Surprisingly. <laughs> um, so I, I've been trying to get through my TBR, as I said, in our goal-busting episode mm-hmm. for this year. And as such, I've been reading across my fantasy shelf, and I read King of Battle and Blood by Scarlet St. Clair, which was pretty good. It's uh, like spicy vampires and fantasy, and it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read the second one, and it infuriated me so much. So I threw it, and I scared my dog, and I can't believe <laughs> I actually threw a book. That so. poor dog. What did he do to you? Nothing. I didn't hit him. Mm-hmm. I just kind of scared him and woke him up. Yeah, and he not was fair. like, what the hell? Not nice. So, yeah, unfortunately, I can't recommend it, but I read it. So, that's fun. Beautiful. But, well, you want to know what we're doing next, Jen? Yeah, what are we doing next? We have an interview. Oh, yeah. We do have an interview. You buy With us- one of the, like, I don't know. She is a bastion of modern romance. Mm -hmm. She's a legend. She is a legend when it comes to comes to the episode. Yeah, when it comes to the genre. So Mm -hmm. we are going to be interviewing Susan Elizabeth Phillips. I am very excited, Jen. I kind of threw her under the bus. I was like, Jen, we're interviewing this person, and she goes, Oh, okay. Yeah. So it should be good. Mm -hmm. Um, That episode will come out the second Friday of February. Oh, good. Just in time for Valentine's Day. Can't wait. Hey, there we go. All right. Well, Jen, any other updates? No. Cool. I'm boring. Where should people email us if they want to talk to us? Uh, Obviously, they should email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. Beautiful. Thank you. And listeners, if you have any thoughts, opinions, vibes on unicorns, dragons, virgins, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, books we should shouldn't read how you're doing on your reading goals give us a shout until then jen what do we always say bye guys what do you call a unicorn with no horn what a unicorn unicorn (laughs) my god that's the after dark one we put at the end of the podcast that is perfect. Thank That's what you. happens when you listen to the bloopers. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Jen. Obviously, this will all get cut. Yeah. So. Oh, God. We're still recording? Yeah. Oh, oops. <laughs> I just let it roll. Okay. Let it roll, baby. Oh, God. Please delete stuff. <laughs> delete. 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 Oh, I don't want to leave. Okay. <laughs>